0: All right, thank you, Pastor Mike. We're going to be going from chapter six, verse 30, all the way down to the end of the chapter, so we're going to be looking at two different miracles today and seeing how Mark ties them together. But again, let's just turn to the Lord for a moment and ask him to lead us through this time. God, we thank you for gathering us again together around your word, and we thank you for our church family We ultimately belong to you this church belongs to you and we pray that you would feed us through your word please apply it by your spirit again we pray that you would guard the flock today and please challenge our hearts where we need growth and change in our own lives and we ask that our hope would ultimately be resting in you in jesus name we pray amen So it's amazing. Um, are the lights coming on, guys? Thanks. It's amazing how Mark has been showing us patterns and examples throughout his book. Uh, one of those patterns is of people who have seen and or heard the words and works of Jesus, yet they do not latch on to him with full trust and belief. So, for example, in chapter 5, just recently, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and healed a man who was possessed by a demon. Everyone had seen him. Everyone had known about him. And it says in chapter 5, verse 15, that after the man was healed, if you will, of his demon possession, people came and saw the demon-possessed man. They knew about this guy that was running like a wild man in the cemetery They came down to the beach, and they saw him now in his right mind, and the conclusion was, in verse 15, they were afraid. Not only were they afraid, but their response to Jesus was that they begged him to depart. So here's the ministry of Jesus. Here's people seeing it, and what is their response? It's not what you would expect. They're rejecting him. Then go to Jairus' house. Jesus travels there to revive his daughter. People had heard of Jesus' works and his ministry. That's why they asked Jesus to come to heal the dying daughter. He arrives there, and she's dead. And you remember his words, she's not dead, she's sleeping, to prove that death was not ultimate for her. So Jesus goes into the house, revives the girl, And the people are astonished and amazed, and even before he goes in there, they laughed at him saying, he can't do this. Another pattern or mark of people not understanding Jesus. In chapter six, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and they have heard about the works and ministry of Jesus when he gets there, but they unbelieve. They don't believe, they reject him. They don't know who Jesus is. Now let's hone it in a little bit more with the disciples. They've been with Jesus. They've seen a number of miracles up to this point. And the question is, will they get who Jesus is? Mark has been unpacking this theme that he is the Messiah who delivers us from sin. And he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, capable of doing all of these miracles. And he's preaching that message of repentance. Believe, believe, believe in the gospel. Will the disciples get it? Well, they understand who Jesus is. Well, as we start the sermon, let me give you the theological points up front. And this will kind of tell you where the sermon is going. The theological point that Mark is conveying is somewhat sobering. Here it is. You can be familiar with Jesus, but not understand him because of a hardened heart. You can be familiar with Jesus. Very possible For many of us in here this morning to be like the disciples and to be like the crowds that had been around Jesus, to be familiar with him, to hear what he has to say, and in their case, to even see what he's been doing, but not understand him, not grasp him, and not even trust him because of a hardened heart. Now, there are two scenes That we'll go through this morning and the point that i just gave you comes at the end of the second scene so i just want you to know where we're going with that two scenes the two scenes are going to be the two points to the sermon number one is jesus provides that's scene one and then the second scene is jesus abides so if you're taking notes those are the two points that you can write down jesus provides and jesus abides All right, let's move into the the first miracle that takes place, scene one here. So Pastor Mike read this, verse 30, The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus had given them unique power to cast out demons and to heal people. They went out and preached a message of repentance around the region of Galilee. And so you remember that Sea of Galilee is in the northern region, And visually what I see are these disciples going out in pairs and going out to these villages and towns and little fires are starting to light up, fires of excitement, fires of who is this Jesus. So the disciples return, and not only do the disciples return, but the crowds are coming with them. At the end of verse 31, it says that many were coming and going to the point that Jesus and his disciples, it says, didn't even have leisure, didn't even have time to grab a bite to eat. They're eating on the fly and on the run. So what Jesus does in verse 32 is he says, we need a break. It's time to get away. They jump in a boat. This has been one of their modes of transportation. And in verse 32, it says that Jesus is leading them to a desolate place. Now, there's a question in my mind. Mark doesn't really answer it very clearly, Do they make it to this desolate place for a few days and then when they're coming back, do we move into verse 33? Now many saw, or do they get in the boat, head out onto the lake, and the crowds are on the land and they're watching them, seeing where they're going, and many see where they're going and show up. Verse 33, 34, here's what it says. Many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So if this was supposed to be their place of reprieve, It's not happening. If this is that they're coming from their place of reprieve, they're in the boat, they can somehow recognize Jesus and the disciples, they are anticipating where he's going to dock along the sea and they run there and meet them. Jesus' popularity has grown so much that the disciples, uh, the crowds are following him and you have to wonder now as Jesus comes off the boat how he's going to respond. So that takes us to verse 34. The camera is on Jesus right now. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Um, I couldn't help but think about this great crowd in light of this last week, what was happening in England where the queen is celebrating 70 years of rain, called it her platinum jubilee. And you see that when at least the cameras are taking pictures of her, she's got smiles on her face. The crowd is drawing out smiles on her face. And you stand up in front of a crowd, sometimes a crowd draws out embarrassment in you, right? Sometimes a crowd might well up arrogance or appreciation. What does this crowd draw out of Jesus? What is his response here? In verse 34, it says that when he saw a great crowd, here is Jesus' response. Here is what wells up with inside of him. It says, deep compassion is there. And don't miss that. That deep compassion is something that is very deep and guttural. The Greek word for that is this word splognizomai. And I say it like that because it comes from the word splognon. And splognon has to do with your guts. Your intestines. This word for compassion, splognizomai. Some of you remember that word, onomatopoeia. Remember that? Where it sounds like something pertaining to the actual thing itself. What, what's going on is this compassion is welling up from within Jesus down in the deep, splognizomai, splognon, his guts there. Now, Goofiness aside, there are things in life that draw compassion out of you. You see it, and it draws compassion out of you. I can remember a group of us went down to Haiti there and uh, did some work. This is, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I think one of the things is when you see real deep poverty, deep poverty, it draws out an emotional response. We jumped on some of these off-road little ATVs and headed back about two hours into the mountains to visit one of the Christians there. And I, I remember the kids coming out and some of the kids just had a shirt on, just a shirt, nothing else, just a shirt. And everything else was exposed. And there are some of the kids there that are, chewing on an ear of corn. That was their food. So they're walking around, nothing on from the belly button down, and what they have in their hand is an ear of corn, and it it draws something out of you when you see that. Some of you have been in those situations where you've seen something that really moves you. Maybe a family member has gone through a very hard trial or a very hard experience that you never saw coming, and your heart just pities them. This is where Jesus is. He's been busy. He's needed a break, whether he got it or not, I'm not really sure. He shows up and you might expect him to say, not another crowd, I just want a few more days alone. But no, he shows up and he sees people like you. People like us. And what comes out of him is not I'm annoyed by them, not I'm frustrated with them, not hey, I need to ditch them. What comes out of them is this deep, overwhelming pity for them. And the middle of verse 34, it tells us why. It's not because they're physically poor, but note what he says here. He had compassion on them for what reason? Because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. They have no spiritual guidance to their lives. They are plodding along through life on their own with no oversight. They're missing what Jesus has to offer them here. Sheep without a shepherd, they're vulnerable, they're unprotected. You think, here's the role of the shepherd to protect and to feed the sheep. And here's this massive crowd of people who are wandering aimlessly in their relationship with God. And Jesus just responds and he says, I've got pity on them. So, what does Jesus do? How does he act out of his compassion? he meets their needs, but notice how he meets their needs. Their greatest need is found at the end of verse 34. He began to teach them many things. He opens up the truth of God to them, and if you will, serves it up to them. And if you were to look at Luke's gospel with this same event that's taking place, Luke brings in this little phrase that he taught them about the kingdom of God. That's been Jesus's message the kingdom of God the authority of God the rule and reign of God is here in your midst and he's speaking of himself I'm here I am what you need the greatest need for every single person this morning is to hear the message of God's good rule and his good reign and his good authority for your life in Jesus Christ where we would do what Jesus has said, repent and believe the gospel, turn from whatever we've been focusing on in life, even if it's not, quote unquote, the bad things. If it's causing you to miss Jesus, it's bad. And Jesus would say, repent of where you've been, even if it's like a a good thing in life, repent of where you've been and turn to Jesus because he is what we all need this morning. And some of us, need to desperately hear and believe the truth of Jesus. He looks at you and I with compassion this morning. You felt it for a while now. You felt like a sheep without without a shepherd. You've looked at life and you've just said, man, I've been wandering around. I have no boundaries in life. I'm trying to figure out where do I belong. And Jesus has compassion on you this morning and wants you to know that the blessed place for you to be is under the rule and reign of God. And so you would come to him in faith saying, I believe, I believe the truth of what God has spoken to me in his word. Otherwise, you're going to be vulnerable. And the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion looking around at these sheep who have no shepherd aiming to destroy them with deception and lies. He's the deceiver. So Jesus teaches them. We continue on, verses 35 and following. It says that after Jesus is done teaching them, it grew late. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, so this is later in the day, Jesus has been teaching. And the disciples say, let's just catch our surroundings right now for a moment and see what's going on. This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. So there they are by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Perhaps at a place where all of these people can be, and we'll see here that there were 5,000 men, so this crowd could be 15,000 people from all around Galilee that has gathered together. There's thousands of people here, and the disciples are taking all of this in and saying, this is a desolate place, the hour is now late. Jesus, you need to send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now keep in mind This is not like a major event place that we would gather at, you know, for the fireworks, Coast Guard, and there's several thousands of people down there for the fireworks, and when it comes time to break up, everybody can rush Culver's and get their greasy hamburger or something like that. If you're hungry, just stop by a joint on the way home. This is a very different society and culture. Food is hard to come by. And so the disciples are just being very practical with all of this, saying, you need to send this huge crowd home or we're going to have a real issue on our hands. Seems to be valid. But verse 37, Jesus' response is very interesting. And he drops an imperative on these disciples, and he turns to them, and he says, now you give them something to eat. Well, that's impossible now. Um, here's a massive crowd of people. The disciples are saying, no, here's the logical plan. Send them home because they need to eat. And Jesus turns back to them and he says, now you give them something to eat. So last week I, I was uh, in the gymnasium. You remember we, we had our lunch time there. There was all kinds of crock pots, all kinds of dishes, all that kind of stuff. And I was talking with Karen and Karen said, Nate, you might want to invite another church. We got plenty of food here to, for lunch. There's all kinds of food. Now imagine we're all gathered in the gymnasium, packed in there. It's lunchtime, and somebody says, where's the food? And there's no food around. And somebody comes to you and says, hey, it's your job. You give them something to eat right now. You might be thinking, raid the nurseries and look for goldfish or something like that. (laughs) Where can we find some crackers? That's what the disciples are being faced with. But Jesus is leading them along. In the middle of verse 37, after all that the disciples have seen going on in the life of Jesus, how do they respond? Well, they say to Jesus with a little chip on their shoulder, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Some of you have the footnotes in your Bible that will explain just how much 200 denarii are. It's 200 Days worth of pay for an average laborer and so they're standing back and saying does anybody got 200 days worth of wages for us to go get some bread clearly it's just kind of sarcasm here anyone who's counting heads realizes this is impossible but here is the point that is beginning to surface the disciples are looking at this monumental task and saying it's impossible can't do it and yet the Son of God who does the impossible who has healed lepers of leprosy who has healed paralytics who has cast out a legion of demons who has raised a daughter from the dead is standing right in their midst and they've seen it the whole time they've seen Jesus's authority over nature and they're looking at this and saying by nature's standards this is impossible they can be very familiar with Jesus very up close, but not understand and connect the dots in their minds with who Jesus is. So Jesus helps them along. Verse 38, he responds by asking, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, we've got five loaves and two fish. That's what they have to work with. It's going to feed many people. Verse 39, Jesus responds and said, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, and so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. It's interesting language that Mark would include that. Uh, The reason being is because as you listen to noise in the Old Testament, as you listen to language in the Old Testament, Moses had to lead the people of Israel, and at times he would have them grouped down into groups of thousands, hundreds, and fifties. Moses trying to lead frustrated people would have faced that. Notice also, he talks about them being a shepherd without sheep. And now, where is he having them sit down? In the green grass? Does it cast your mind back to Psalm 23? Where David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not have a want. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Jesus is going to be the shepherd that these sheep need. So verse 41, Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish. He says a blessing. He broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And what happened? Verse 42, several things to close out this miracle. It says they all ate and they were satisfied. In other words, there was plenty of food. All the thousands of people from those five loaves and two fish were fed. Verse 43, they also took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Probably just a reminder for those 12 disciples who were saying, how are we going to do this? And in verse 44, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, scene one comes to an end, and here's what we see. We see Jesus, the Son of God, providing for his people. Now, Mark doesn't want us to stop right there. The way that he is putting these miracles together is strung along tightly, and in verse 45, it says, immediately, okay, so don't stop reading, immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Again, here's the boat. They're around the Sea of Galilee. From your view, they might be in Capernaum over here. Bethsaida is on the very northern point of the Sea of Galilee here, so he has them kind of skip the land part and just make their way up to Bethsaida here. In verse 46, it says, when he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. This was Jesus's custom where He would get away, and he would pray. And by the way, you will hear theology along the way, errant theology, that says that Jesus was God in the flesh, which he is, but they will deny the Trinity in saying that the Father was just manifesting himself as Jesus in the flesh. It's called modalism. One of the things that just doesn't make sense with theological modalism is that why would Jesus... Go and pray to his father regularly if, the father, if he was the father. There's, there's theological camps out there that you can just be aware of, but when you come to passages like this where you see Jesus praying to the father, there is a triune God, father, son, and spirit, and here is the son praying to the father. He needs some time alone. He feels the weight of ministry. When evening came, verse 47, it says that the boat was out on the sea, And he was alone on the land. So there's the disciples out there, and Jesus is on the land. Clear separation. Verse 48. When he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Okay, so soak it in here. Jesus is on land. He's up on a mountain. And the Sea of Galilee is approximately eight miles across. And so up on a mountain, you could see the span of the lake. The disciples wouldn't have needed to go out to the middle of the lake. They could have skirted along the shore there to make it up to Bethsaida. And it says that Jesus can see them as they're rowing across the lake. But he says that they are rowing and they are straining because of the wind. Some of you have been in canoes on a windy day. It's just kind of miserable to be out on a lake when the waves are choppy and you're trying to keep that bow right in front of you and the wind is blowing it along. What does Jesus do as he sees his disciples? It says about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, and get this, kids, he was walking on the sea. Not with a boat. He's walking on the sea. And there's many people who try to explain this way, there was a, a really high sandbar that jutted out right to where the disciples were, and he found that sandbar and followed the sandbar right out to where the boat was. No. Here is Mark presenting Jesus again as the Son of God who is over nature. The theme of walking on water is one that comes up throughout the Old Testament. Job chapter 9, verse 8, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Job 38, verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea, Job, or walked in the recesses of the deep? In Psalm 77, talking about the exodus where Israel came out, was pinned against the Red Sea. Psalm 77, verse 19, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. All right, so Mark is presenting us with this. Jesus' feet are not breaking the tension of the water, standing on top of the water, walking out upon it. And what is the conclusion that Mark wants us to have in our minds? Again, this is the Son of God. Only God can do this. Verse 48 says this at the very end. It says that he meant to pass by them. So this is intentional. Jesus is intentionally coming out to them, walking on water, and he uses this language of meant to pass by them, I believe for the purpose of showing them his glory. I mean, think about it. Here they are. He's called them to Use the boat to get up there. He's on land. He sees them. He walks out. And the text says he meant to pass by. And what we see from Exodus, another passage, is that God intentionally passes by in order to show his glory to Moses. Let me read it for you. Exodus 33, verses 18 through 22. Moses said, please show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by... I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, with his disciples, and I think this language of he meant to pass by is intentional in the sense that he is going to show them how glorious he is. Mark says that he is there passing by, and look at verses 49 and 50. says when they saw him walking on the sea they misunderstood again they didn't get who Jesus was they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for all they saw for they all saw him and were terrified by him okay so put yourself out there it's the fourth watch of the night between three and six o'clock in the morning um they're straining at the wind Maybe their boat is in danger of going down. And here comes Jesus walking on the water to meet them. They think it's a phantom. They think it's a ghost here that is out there. But notice what Jesus says to them. His first words are this. Take heart or take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Just some thoughts about Jesus' words there. Take heart, take courage. It's the same language that Moses used when Israel was up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was coming. Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people, Take courage, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And in Jesus' language here, he tells them to take courage, but then he tells them how they are to take courage or for what reason they are to take courage. It's the very next words. It is I. It's the same language, again, appealing to the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same language for I am the Yahweh God here. Do not be afraid. Why? Take courage. Why? Because of who Jesus is. And so, in all of this, what you see Jesus doing is saying, even these boundaries that you feel between you and myself, which Mark pointed out, they're on the water, I'm on the land. How am I going to get to them? Son of God comes wherever he needs to to meet you where you are. Take courage wherever you are. You're not alone. Take courage, do not be afraid, because Jesus is present with you. I am is with you, God is with his people. He is always with his people. No matter what you're straining against this week, God is with you because this is who God is. And so Jesus says, take courage, I'm here, I'm here with you. I've mentioned this before, but growing up there was always a security when dad was near no matter what was going on dad always had those big farm hands and whenever he was present there was security that was there he could take care of it things would be fine and what jesus is doing is using a similar picture i'm here with you it's okay don't be afraid Verses 51 and 52, we have to keep going here. He got into the boat and the wind ceased. Again, testifying to the fact that he is the son of God. They were utterly astonished. They were at this place where they were astounded. Some of your versions might use the word amazed. I'm not crazy about that word because when we think about the word amazed, we're almost led to say, yes, I have a category for what just happened. I'm amazed that it happened, but I I can understand how it happened. Golden State Warriors, they're down one game to nothing in the NBA finals. You think Steph Curry, he's pretty amazing. You know that he could come back and just drain some threes all over the Celtics, and you'd look back and you'd say, now that guy is amazing, but I had a category in my mind for it knowing that he could do it. The disciples, this is not a category. They're they're astounded, they're astonished, they're bewildered, they're confused. Why is that? Because they have missed the fullness of Jesus' greatness. They haven't come to understand exactly yet who Jesus is. How does a man control the sea and calm the winds down? How does a man, thinking back, heal leprosy? How does he cause a paralytic to walk? He does these things because he's the Son of God, and what is really cool is he's with you it is i now a little extra biblical study here if you're reading matthew's gospel uh, i was encouraged by this because doug Jager was we're following mark's gospel and he says well if i'm reading doug if i'm reading matthew's gospel here's what matthew says let me tell you what matthew says by the way matthew's account has peter saying jesus command me to come to you that's where peter walked out on the water mark doesn't include that that's not for mark's purposes here matthew's gospel has the sea calming down and the text says in matthew's gospel they respond and say they worshiped him and said truly you are the son of god matthew has the disciples painted in this positive light and mark as we'll see in just a moment, has them painted in this negative light. Why would they be doing that? You have to remember that as these authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write their gospel, they are using these themes to, or these pictures here to draw out different conclusions that are true of the same event. And here is what Mark wants us to see here. Notice what takes place In the middle of verse 50 or 51 they were utterly astounded they were bewildered they were confused verse 52 for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened what's going on with this mark here's how one commentator puts it they that is the disciples They failed to see the wonderful glory of Jesus and the greatness of his power in the miracle with the loaves, which was just as much an act of power as the walking on the water or the causing of the wind to cease. You see, the disciples are seeing everything that is taking place, but they cannot see Jesus' glory because their hearts have a hardness to them. Not the kind of hardness that we see in chapter 3 where the Pharisees partner up with the Herodians and want to destroy Jesus. This is not that kind of antagonizing hardness. It's a dullness of heart. It's a hardness where they would say, I'm aiming to follow Jesus, and I hear the things that he says, and I see the things that he does, But I'm missing out on the glory of who he is. So what is the lesson that Mark would have for us? It's this. It is possible for us, and I'm saying us because I'm looking at the disciples who were followers of Jesus. It is very possible for us to be very familiar with Jesus, to sit under his teaching to believe in the miracles that he does, like the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, yet still have a heart that is hardened to his glory and therefore miss out on really understanding who Jesus is. It is very possible for you to have a front row seat to Jesus' mighty works, to be under his teaching regularly. Even to acknowledge his greatness in, his, in your heart, his greatness in your heart, even to sing the songs that we sing, and yet have your heart hardened or dulled to the reality of who Jesus is and how he cares for his own. I think we need to be aware of this category because it tells us that that could be us right now. Let me give you an example how this might play out. I think that at times I have been in the boat and at times my heart is hardened to the glory of Jesus as the Son of God who is with us. How might that look? I'll point to myself and then I'll give you another example. There are times when I face situations in my life where I'm called to be obedient. Here's what the text of Scripture says. This is our our guide, this is our authority, so we have to be obedient to it. Okay, I'll do it. Yet it seems like... There will be no possible outcome, good outcome, of following Jesus in obedience. So here are the disciples. They've seen Jesus. What's the command? Give them something to eat. That's impossible. Can't do it. Nate, I want you to follow me in obedience. What did God have planned for Nate's life? Well, part of that plan was to marry up, have four kids, and come to Grand Haven. And when I thought about ministry as a college guy, when God started doing this, when he started giving me the command, pressing in upon my life, I started looking at myself saying, can't be. Now, where is my attention focused? On myself. And what am I missing in that moment? The glory of the Son of God, who can call his people along, lead them in obedience, and take care of the outcome. You see, what happens is when we get focused on ourselves, what's taking place is the heart is hardening to the real glory of who God is and how he calls us along in obedience to accomplish his purposes in our lives. I've missed that. And not only is it just like that one event that happened in the past, but let's talk about it a little bit more regularly. God calls me specifically to present the word to you On a weekly basis. And I can get into my office and it's like the winds of adversity are causing me to just strain at working in the text. And I look to myself and I say, how will I feed God's people? Where's my focus? On myself, missing the glory of God who uses his word in spite of homeboys like me. Okay, let's tease it out a little bit more to maybe bring some more folks in. A marriage is in crisis mode, and I'm using general categories here. The man has been sitting under the preaching of God's word since he was a child. He grew up in a Christian home, professed faith at a young age. He would say yes to everything that the Bible teaches, and yet he looks at his marriage and says, God, this woman whom you gave to me is impossible. This role in life that you have given to me needs more than I can give. This trouble that I find myself is right now, it's drowning me. I find myself straining every day. And so this man goes on living in fear, fear of what he might lose out on, fear of the situation being outside of his control, missing how God has been faithful in the past with the loaves. Can you see the hardness of heart, missing the glory of God, where God says, I'm not calling you to fix your marriage, I'm just calling you to be faithful. I'm calling you to pour out your life as a drink offering for me, and I'll take care of the rest. But instead, when the focus is upon ourselves, we miss the glory of God, and it's like a hardness just surrounds our fleshy heart. So God would say to him, take heart. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then there's the wife, who's hurt by years of words that have shot her like arrows. She aches because of the neglect. Marriage was never supposed to be this way. She feels alone, defeated at times, and like she is drowning in her own circumstances. She goes to the word each day, hoping that a godly life will somehow help her. If I just do this, then things should get better. Right? She believes. She's like a disciple. But do you see how, in this situation, a hardness of heart can keep this woman afraid? How she is focusing on her circumstances and focusing on her relationships and not letting go of that and clinging to Jesus, the Son of God, for her hope. That Jesus, the Son of God, who says, I'm the one who provides for you. I've been faithful up to this point. I'm the one who abides with you. I'm the son of God, take courage, it is I, walk in faithful obedience to me. A teen girl has grown up in a Christian family and would say, I believe in the Bible. But, what good is it if I still feel like no one really likes me? What good is it if I feel like following God leads me to a place where I'm not getting any respect or love from the world? Can you see the hardness of heart that keeps that teen girl or teen boy from understanding the compassion that Jesus has for her? Here's Jesus showing up at the crowd saying, I have compassion on all of them. Can you see that there's a hardness of heart that keeps her from understanding that someone loves her more deeply than any boy ever will be able to in that moment? When Jesus gathered his disciples together on that night, On the night that he was crucified, he took the loaf, he broke it, and he reminded them, this is my body, which is for you. And he went on to surrender his body as a sacrifice of love, to show his compassion upon his people. He shows that he does have a shepherd's heart towards his people. And so we should respond in faith this morning, not with hardened hearts, But with hearts that say, Jesus, I want to keep my eyes on you, not on the circumstances that I'm facing. We hear Jesus' words saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. We want to be in the place where we're believing that Jesus is the Son of God who is compassionate towards us. He's the Son of God who is a shepherd to us. He's the Son of God who does provide for us. And he's the Son of God who will abide with us. So we come to this and say, beware of a hardened heart by believing, believing in Jesus as the Son of God this week. Let's pray. Just with your heads bowed, we're going to receive communion in just a moment. Those who are helping can come to the front. And just with your your mind engaged with the truth that we've just heard, you can talk to God in the quietness of your heart, and perhaps there's been a dullness, a hardness that's there. This would be a time to confess that. And then after confessing that, it would be a right time to praise God, and thank him for the gift of Jesus in your life. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He certainly has compassion on you, even if you feel like you failed over and over and over again. And so this morning, it's like Jesus comes to you, the crowd, and he's patient with you, and as a shepherd, He gathers you into himself, says it's okay, take courage, it is I. You can spend some time just thanking God for who Jesus is to you this morning. I'll come back and pray in just a moment. God, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your truth that guides us. We want to live by faith, not by sight this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.